0: Good day. Welcome to New Books in Music Podcast. My name is Stephen Lee Naish and I'm your host today. Richard Power Saeed is a writer and documentary filmmaker based in London. His first book, 1997, The Future That Never Happened, which is published by Zed Books, is a brilliant... Good day. Welcome to New Books in Music Podcast. My name is Stephen Lee Naish and I'm your host today. Richard Power Said is a writer and documentary filmmaker based in London. His first book, 1997, The Future That Never Happened, which is published by Zed Books, is a brilliant dissection of British culture in the late 1990s. The book's scope is broad, from music to art, from media to politics. There is a sense that those living during these times never had it so good, yet somehow we let it all slip away. It's my pleasure to introduce Richard Power Said. Welcome to the podcast,
1: Richard. Hey, thanks very much for having me.
0: Yep, it's my pleasure. So um, firstly, let's start off with uh, some background on yourself. So your uh, educational background
1: and your uh, writing career. So I come from a a social scientific background and, you know, part of what this book is about is about kind of taking things like pop music seriously as, uh, as something that has a big impact upon our society and really tells us about the kind of culture we live in but always trying to do that in a way that isn't too dry and, you know, like, uh, main, retains a lot of the fun and the the excitement that pop music uh, has in it. Um, yeah, well, I definitely got that from reading your book, so, yeah. <laughs> That's very nice of you. Um, and then, um, yeah, but as a journalist, I've, uh, I've mostly uh, made documentaries about and written about current affairs subjects, often very political ones, you know, last few years I've been uh, focusing on Brexit a lot of the time um, and so this book was sort of bringing together these um, different sides you know uh, wanting to talk about why Britain is how it is now and you know that's not just a kind of parochial national story it's uh, it's the reason that Britain is experiencing enormous upheaval now and you know Brexit's the most extreme and obvious example of that, but it's by no means the only one. You know, we've got this astonishing rise of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, a socialist, uh, you know, who could very well be um, an enormously popular prime minister very soon. Um, You know, that kind of upheaval in Britain is absolutely the same sort of thing that's happening over in the States with, you know, you've got Bernie Sanders, you've got Donald Trump. We're seeing something very similar happen all across the world.
0: Well, we're definitely going to talk about Brexit a little bit later, but um, I just wanted to uh, ask on, uh, on the back cover of the book, um, you ask uh, 1997, what do you remember? So 1997 for me was a pretty big year because um, I was uh, 16 turning 17. I was like mega into uh, Britpop. I had my first real kind of a- adult, uh, yeah, my first kind of real adult experiences. I went on, you know, it was the first time I got served in a pub, uh, first time I went to a club. Uh, what Went to, yeah, I went on holiday with my friends and stuff like that. It was just such a great year. But I, w- I wanted to ask, uh, where were you in uh, 1997? And um, what were you doing that year? And what memories do you have of that time?
1: You know what? I was even younger. I was nine years old in '97, and um, <laughs> Which kind of surprises people. They're like, what a strange book to write. But actually, it, it, you know, it makes total sense for me. Because the point is, I remember the Spice Girls. I remember Oasis. I remember New Labour coming to power. I remember, really remember Princess Diana dying, but I didn't understand any of these things. You know, they were extraordinary key moments in my in my childhood, but I didn't really know what was going on. So writing this book was about kind of going back to these exciting memories but trying to work out like what did happen and you know, all the stories that we tell ourselves in our kind of like our national history of our recent past, are those stories that we tell ourselves quite accurate? Or actually, you know, maybe we should be reevaluating our recent past a bit. And, you know, I was talking so much about what the current political upheaval is. Well, the point is, that's relevant to 97, because looking back at what happened to us over the last couple of decades tell us, tells us how we got to this point.
0: Yeah well I would totally agree with that. So um so let's just get to uh to get to your book. So whilst um 1997 uh, isn't necessarily a music book, you know this is a music book podcast but uh, it does contain chapters on the Spice Girls and Britpop.
1: Absolutely. Oh I mean you know the the music bit of it is the I mean it's a massive section of the book and it's it's a really really I mean it's one of the really fun bits.
0: Yeah, no, it's huge. And, um, you know, I think for me, it acted as the gateway drug into the rest of the book. So um, if, if, if you got uh, if you can spare a few moments on this one uh, to discuss the Spice Girls and your chapter entitled Girl Power, um, if you could give us a little bit of insight into the impact uh, they had on 90s culture and uh, uh,
1: where you think it went wrong for them. So, I mean, the first thing is the Spice Girls were a we perhaps forget just how huge they were. They were kind of Beatles-level world domination, but just for a much, much shorter period than the Beatles. Um, and, I mean, I think we can also say, like, maybe the music wasn't quite as good as the as the Fab Four either. But the point is that they were that huge in global pop culture. Uh, and I'm particularly interested in the Spice Girls because they really reflect the extraordinary optimism and the kind of liberal, modern optimism of 97, which, you know, maybe is, is most famously embodied by Tony Blair. But the point is, it was happening right beyond politics into the whole of the culture. And the thing about the Spice Girls is they did this extraordinary thing. They were marketed with the slogans of 1970s feminism, of the women's liberation movement, the future is female we're maybe quite used now to uh, radical politics getting co-opted to sell whichever random product is uh, is on the shelves today. But back in the late 90s, this was a, a really, really kind of, kind of a strange thing to do, to use uh, an ideology that was so uh, pervasively mocked uh, and, and which was so widely seen as being uncool, feminism say actually no there's something incredibly like strong and vibrant To say we can make it cool to say we can use it to sell stuff uh it's obviously obviously something very cynical going on there but something very unusual and something very very characteristically 97 trying to bring radical things into the mainstream and the question is you know does that have actually some like a um, a small progressive impact on our society or does it just get completely exploited for the sake of people who've already got a lot of power?
0: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, a lot of your book actually deals with that idea, doesn't it? Uh, this idea of like, um, watered down radical ideas, I suppose. And, uh, yeah, for me, I mean, I remember the Spice Girls so well. I mean, I was huge Britpop fan, but like, you know, the Spice Girls were there and I, you know what, they, they had my time, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> I didn't ignore okay. them just because they were a pop artist. They were obviously something way bigger than
1: just that. So, yeah, and you know, their pop songs were really well constructed pop songs. Uh, Very well. You know, they're, um, they've got great hooks. The videos are, are you know, really sta- Most of the videos really stand up to the test of time. They, you know, the Spice Girls had actually just not that many hits. You know, they had like I can't remember the exact number. It's something like only eight uh really big singles um mm-hmm. but um i think all but all but one of them went to number 1 yeah yeah i think one went to number 2 the rest went to number 1 um they had a, a huge impact and i guess the question is does that huge commercial impact then get reflected in um you know did girl power which is their kind of watered down version of feminism did it still manage to have a positive impact or did it get really counteracted by the fact that A, the Spice Girls were in many ways presenting really kind of like reactionary ideas about, you know, like women should be conventionally attractive in this very specific way. Um, uh, And, you know, also the kind of feminism they were uh, representing was a very kind of individualist one, you know, a a Thatcherite feminism of, you've mm-hmm. got to fight for yourself not you've got to have solidarity with other women um and although that was maybe a bit of the, of the solidarity element I as well but also you know another problem with uh with, with, with girl power that feminist critics identified and perhaps this is more and even more important is that a lot of the time it was used as a marketing gimmick to exploit little girls to kind of you know Persuade them that they were in power, and therefore they should go buy this or that product with the Spice Girls logo on it. Um, you know, that's not feminism. That's like it's that's its free market antithesis. So um, there's a you know that's that and that's an ongoing question, really. You know, in all um, in all politics, it's you know how much do you compromise with the mainstream if you wanna if you wanna change the world? How much are you gonna? Uh, Get involved with people who you really disagree with? It's a big mm-hmm. question for anyone.
0: Yeah, it certainly is. It's a huge question right now. I mean, with the rise of uh, Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, you know,
1: sure, uh, I,
0: you. I've seen him change uh, over the past uh, two years to being actually a very credible leader. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly, but, you know, that's because he has engaged with uh, with the mainstream or, and watered, maybe, well, maybe he hasn't, I don't know, but watered down his kind of. Uh, Sort of staunch socialism, which he was always very known for. You know what? We'll get to we'll get to him. Yeah, I'm sure we, <laughs> we will can
1: talk about that later. Yeah,
0: I always felt that uh, the Spice Girls. Uh, well, you know, it was Jerry Halliwell who said, you know, Margaret Thatcher was the uh, the first Spice Girl. And mm-hmm. I always, I always felt that was just a,
1: a huge, huge problem. <laughs> you know, <it> really did <laughs> well, at the time. I, I think uh, I think quite a lot of the Spice Girls themselves were really angry about that. Mel C. Um, and, and I think they'll be as well, you know, um, have uh, come out as Labour supporters yeah. uh, and mm-hmm. left-wingers at uh, various times and they were really annoyed about being identified with the Conservative Party. But Jerry Halliwell has absolutely uh, held on to her Conservative ideals um, yeah. and she's a very, she was very critical of the European Union back in the late 90s as well. Um, oh, was well, she think, really? Wow. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, she was very critical of Blair and his kind of pro-European uh, perspective in this, uh, that they were interviewed in The Spectator, which uh, the non-British listeners um, should explain is a, uh, a fairly right-wing uh, current affairs magazine, very stylish, um, uh, very well written, but with often some pretty, pretty reactionary perspectives in there. And this famous historian Simon Sebag Montefiore uh, interviewed them. It kind of seemed like a bit of a joke interview, perhaps. But uh, Jerry Halliwell made this perhaps kind of offhand, suddenly very well chosen comment about how Margaret Thatcher had been the original Spice Girl. And what, what it did was it, was it was it was exactly the right moment for them because it was when they were just starting to be not just like a kiddie pop band, but something a bit more pervasive. It was, I think, December 1996. And what it allowed was for any uh, political journalist who was kind of writing a slightly boring story about this or that, um, you know, they over the next few months, so many political news stories had kind of zigzagged Ah or sorry, zigga ah, or or wannabe or or whatever it was, some kind of girl power related slogan um slipped into the headline and a kind of tangential reference to the Spice Girls being Tories made their political story just a little bit more interesting. And you know, that's amazing marketing, that's amazing advertising. It got the Spice Girls being noticed in a totally different section of the media, and it was a really key part of how the Spice Girls went from being basically a kiddie pop band to being uh, a, a much more kind of like culturally pervasive force least, which they were for another 12-15 months mm-hmm. yeah
0: it was pretty short-lived yeah <laughs>
1: yeah the, uh, I don't know what happened to the
0: philosophy of Zigar, but uh, I think it's due for a comeback
1: well, a very uh, coherent and sophisticated philosophy. I'm sure we can all agree. Absolutely. That's it. You know, I'm kind of like making fun, but what is like, what's happening when someone goes zig-zag-ah in a song? It, it sounds like totally fluffy and superficial or whatever, but part of what's going on there is Melby B, uh, Scary Spice, as she was known, was being... Assertive was being aggressive in a in a sexualized way. And this was something not totally unknown, but relatively unusual, um, definitely in the kind of like middle of the mainstream pot for women to show themselves to be really sexually assertive uh and in control of their own lives. And you know, I think there was something very meaningful there. Um, and it means that we can't just totally uh, dismiss the, this idea that the Spice Girls um, were feminists so that they might have had uh, a feminist impact. You know, there's something more complex going on than just a pop that
0: Absolutely. Um, so let's move on to uh, the other chapter that uh, is uh, also about music, which is Oasis. Um, on the cover of the book, uh, you have the very infamous photo of Oasis's Noel Gallagher and the British Prime Minister Tony Blair shaking hands. So this, uh, this for me was uh, arguably the handshake that ended any sense of rebellion or excitement that Oasis had had. Uh, what do you think that image represents? Was this uh, the beginning, the end for Oasis?
1: I, I think uh, it, it was a sign that both Britpop, uh, well, it was a sign that Britpop and especially Oasis had come to this moment where they were both like you know, like I was saying about the Spice Girls in that year, culturally pervasive. You know, they were a total kind of orthodoxy. And but in that moment of reaching the very, very center of the mainstream and becoming the thing that everyone was talking about, they also lost the thing that had made them so exciting and what and what, and what was so important about Britpop was that it was it was trying to say something authentic about Britain. It was trying to be an expression of grassroots feeling. It was trying to give voice to experiences that have been ignored by pop culture for a very long time. That can, you know, maybe that sounds a little bit idealistic or um, you know, a little bit theoretical, but the fact is that's something very special and we forget how unusual that was. We forget how throughout uh 70s 80s and a lot of the 90s um pop music had been so dominated by uh by American styles and American voices American accents or kind of transatlantic middle of the Atlantic accents and of course you know I love American music and uh, uh pop music but the point is that there were times when When other things were being kind of obscured by that in British pop music, for Britpop to arrive and say, no, no, let's talk about our lives and let's talk about our experiences, that was really special. And it was exactly the moment that that reaches the height of its popularity, but also anything kind of rebellious and authentic about that gets taken away because, you know, there's the king of Britpop hanging out with the Totally middle of the road Prime Minister sipping champagne. You know, it's, um it was a big disappointment for a lot of people. Seeing uh Noel Gallagher in the uh, the state drawing rooms of um of Downing Street <sighs> nervously smiling. He does look very nervous, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they both look pretty worried. I mean, Tony Blair was uh very, very excited about uh uh about this uh celebrity assignation you know he was he was rubbing shoulders with cool people and um he was getting to look by like, hanging out with someone like Noel Gallagher um most of your listeners probably know Noel Gallagher was from a, a very very difficult working class background Irish working class in Manchester and and, and Tony Blair again you know i think some of you are, listeners will know this, but others won't. Tony Blair had taken the Labour Party, which was a relatively traditional socialist party, and he had um, taken it significantly to the right. He really separated it from its historical relationship with the trade unions, with the labour movement, with nationalised industries. And so someone like Noel Gallagher represented Tony Blair, being friends with him, and that Tony Blair could say, no, look, see, I'm still kind of connected to the grassroots. I'm still connected to what was historically the origins of, of my party and the people who vote for it. Uh, and so, it you know, kind of being friends with hip hop musicians was like a symbolic substitute for Tony Blair actually having any left wing policies, a lot of which had disappeared.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely correct. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I was uh, you know, Oasis were a big band for me because I was dead in the middle there of um, when they released uh <clears throat> What's the Story Morning Glory, I was maybe fifteen, sixteen, and then it was just they were just so huge. But for some reason, even though I was too young to vote for uh for Blair, um just that image of him in that in those rooms uh, you know, where so many decisions were being made and it just, I don't know, for me, it was uh, it was a bad moment for them. And actually, you know, that kind of leads into another question, I suppose, because this was also the year that um, Oasis released their record, Be Here Now, which was arguably the most overhyped record of their career and maybe even of all time by any band. Um, it's seen as a signifier to the end of Britpop.
1: Um, what do you think the problem was with that record, that one in particular? Uh, I mean, there were a lot of problems with it, uh, you know, be Here Now got so hyped, uh, partly because, what's the story, Morning Glory, which is an incredible album um, that precedes it, you know, Morning Glory has got Wonderwall, got Don't Look Back in Anger. Um, it's a, it, it's an extraordinary record, and uh, but it had been kind of overlooked by the music press. They, they'd kind of described it as being slightly disappointing, but then... It had built uh, so much popularity with, uh, you know, with Oasis' fans um, and the music critics basically realized that they'd got it wrong. So they were primed when Be Here Now was released, they were primed to give it uh, a good review. Um, but actually lots of things had gone really wrong with with uh, with its production, I mean, even writing it, uh, you know, Noel Gallagher was living this incredibly kind of luxurious lifestyle, hanging out on tropical beaches with celebrities. He, you know, arguably was not in the right place socially and culturally. You know, occasionally meeting Tony Blair at an awards ceremony. He wasn't necessarily in the right place to be writing a record that felt as Immediate and important as, as the LPs that had preceded it. And then when they started actually recording the, the album that would, the the songs that would eventually make up Be Here Now, um, there were all of these fights he was having with Liam, which probably didn't help very much. They were taking massive amounts of coke, you know, much more than they even had before. And what they did was the production, you know, I'd say to people, go back to Morning Glory and listen to it compared to Be Here Now. And what you'll see is that the production of Be Here Now is so much more layered, so much more dense. You've got so many guitars on top of each other, on top of each other, on top of each other, um, especially on a record like Do You Know What I Mean, which the the first single that came out of it. And it's just, it's too much. These songs, which, you know, potentially could have been decent Oasis songs, they kind of just get ruined by being too Oasis-y. <laughs> yeah,
0: I seem to remember, um, uh, do you know what I mean, when that was released? That's like nine minutes long, isn't it? That's a really long song for 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 Oasis, who are, you know, known as a, uh, just a raucous ro- uh, rock and roll band. A nine-minute song is actually, I mean, Radiohead did a nine-minute song the same year. I think that's right okay computer um yeah came out in 97 yeah and that that was fine for them but for oasis yeah nine minute song is not something to be you know kind of enjoyed i don't think but...
1: no not unless you're willing to you know um, if noel had taken his songwriting up a step if he'd really pushed himself with his um with his writing uh then maybe he could have made something that was complex enough to warrant nine minutes you know but the fact is he uh, for a very long time had an extraordinary talent for writing you know those kind of punchy uh songs which have just got a few uh brilliant ideas in them and then they're over um but a nine minute song has to develop so much more you've got there's too much space for just a couple of ideas a couple of hooks you know, what? what is that? That is a, an image of, uh, well, you could call it arrogance. Uh, of course, what's really exciting about Oasis was their arrogance, was their, their brute force. Um, but if it's not matched by by brilliant pop songs, if it's not matched by seeming rebellious, which it can't be if you're hanging out with the prime minister, well, then arrogance stops looking exciting in it. To be a bit of a time, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: At least you know, with uh, when Radiohead released uh, Paranoid Android, they had the decency to make it almost four different songs in one. I think you know, right, right, yeah. do you know what I mean? It was just one long slog of a song, yeah. <laughs>
1: it was so you know what? I i, I won't pretend that I don't uh, have quite fond memories of it. Uh, that I, I recently re watched uh, the video which is them uh touching down in a helicopter military helicopter in some sort of like post-war dystopia uh and in kind of like lots of slow-mo then kind of like uh trudging through and then slinging their guitars over their necks and really slamming into this song all of these crowds of people watching them holding huge orange flares and not gonna lie, I love that stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's it's not um it's not their best song but uh it still gives me a lot of pleasure. Uh and I would sing along to that song.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, it's interesting because there, there is almost like a parallel between New Labour and uh, Oasis because both of them had this very kind of, uh, well, appealing to the working classes. But it, by 1997, with them meeting, it kind of, uh, you know, it kind of was lost a little bit. So do you think like that meeting with uh, with uh, well, that, that whole event that... Uh, uh, that Noel Gallagher attended w- was that kind of like the beginning of, a, of of New
1: Labour's gradual demise, or did that come a little later? I think that came later. That so that was July nineteen ninety seven that Tony Blair had this star-studded party at Downing Street, uh, and um, actually, you know, his greatest moment um, came uh, a couple of months later. Um, this awful tragedy of, of princess diana dying um which is another chapter uh, in the book the the way that um that, that had a huge fallout um in uh, in, in britain's culture and in its politics um you know that was tony blair's uh in some ways it, you know it's a very cynical thing to say but it's, it was his greatest moment it was the moment when he was able to really kind of harness what was happening In Britain, and use it to his own advantage. Um, So, no, I don't think that was the beginning of at the end for New Labour. Most people date New Labour's uh, demise to two thousand and three, when Blair uses all of his political skills to take Britain into the Iraq War. Actually, I would say that uh, it it kind of happens a bit before that. Labour's demise, because ultimately you know new labor failed because they were appealing only to actually quite a narrow band of people. They were always very good at triangulating the uh, um the floating voter but throughout their different elections that they that they won uh voting turnout fell and fell and fell uh basically working class people who had traditionally voted labour this kind of a lot of people just stopped voting because new labor was such a turnoff because they were so clearly not um, putting forward um, the best policies for, um for ordinary people. Uh, and, um, and because it seemed to people that there was no difference between labor and the talk. Mm.
0: Um, and let's not forget as well, that uh, a few years ago, um, uh, it not, Noel Gallagher wasn't the only Brit pop star to meet a prime minister. Um, Alex James from Blur had uh, David Cameron at his uh, cheese shop. <laughs>
1: so <laughs> so time, times yeah. don't change. No, times don't change. They're they're uh, they're apparently good friends. That was always a, a really big um, a really big tension um, within Blur because Alex James was always very kind of unpolitical, and then eventually turned out to. The mates of david cameron um uh whereas other members of blur were uh you know, much more uh much more left-wing and much more kind of politically critical and you know i think that kind of all the criticisms that you can make of uh the album um you know the way that he's taken his music um over uh, since brit pop um you know that's really a sign of someone who keeps pushing himself he keeps asking questions and it's true of gray and uh, Hoxon as well of course you know that th- both of them uh were you know they love making pop music they love making songs that uh, are listenable and people um, want to engage with but they also really want to innovate and they want to push themselves and change what they do um you know, of course Damon Alban has his enormously successful side project Gorillas. Um, he has Africa Express, which is his very long-running series of concerts and, uh, and 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 record with artists from around the world, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, he, you know, I saw him last year playing with uh, the Syrian National Orchestra, which is a really extraordinary, very moving moment. You know, yeah, he he pushes himself forward. Artistically, and I think that reflects someone who's become much more socially and politically. Engaged.
0: Yeah, I would say that he's definitely pushed out of that Britpop bubble now, uh, a long time ago, in fact. Yeah,
1: and also let's not forget as well,
0: David Roundtree, who is the uh, drummer for the uh, didn't he run as an MP uh, for Labour uh, a couple of years ago?
1: He ran for the Labour Party, actually, in the constituency that I was uh, oh, in at the really? time. Uh, uh, two cities. So, cities uh, so of London, Westminster. So, uh, yeah, he, uh, he ran as the council
0: Okay, well, let's move on. Um, so, let's talk a little about uh, some of the other aspects of the book. So, could you tell us about the chapter on the young British artists who were known as the YBAs? So, who were they? And uh, what did they represent? And, again, how did they fail?
1: So the YBAs were a. Uh, the, the YBAs were um, kind of Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin, uh, and these uh, very exciting artists of the early 90s, the mid 90s, the late 90s. Um, they were emerging um, at the end of the 80s, but they only really became huge household names in 97. And what they did with their art was um, they were trying to express some really kind of uh, shocking ideas, but in very kind of clear, punchy ways. People might remember um, Damien Hurst's shark in a tank of formaldehyde, or Tracy Emin's unmade bed. These were images that, in a second, immediately communicated a uh, Feeling to you you didn't have to do any uh, um, any kind of like careful critical interpretation you know the image of the bed of the unmade bed was an image of an emotional turmoil the image of the shark was the image of danger and of death and this kind of very easily accessible uh, contemporary art you know it was supposed to be bringing uh, the experimental avant-garde and the and a, you know population of ordinary people uh who didn't necessarily have an artistic education together you know finally it's the intellectuals and the masses together fighting the establishment that's the idea of this kind of art um and you know it fundamentally failed because actually uh, the brit artists the ybas were so many of them were so concerned with just kind of shocking people and getting attention. And for a lot of them, you know, that was the primary route towards making money. Um, And of course that's never the way to persuade people to be critical and angry with, you know, helps people be angry with them, the British artists themselves.
0: Yeah. um, I feel like some of their, their art. Um, it, it passed me by at the time, but uh, you know, it, it has more in common with uh, marketing and with advertising than actual art. And this um, this chapter um, made me go back and watch. Uh, uh, well, firstly, you, you actually, you um, you described Damien Hurst in your book as a commercially viable brand, which I think is absolutely right. But this made me go back and watch uh, a, a, an interview with him and the comedian Noel Fielding uh, they were walking around uh, Damien Hurst's kind of um, retrospective exhibition from a few years ago, I think. And, uh, you know, Hurst's entire body language and his mannerisms uh, and the way he talks about his own art wasn't that as a, of, of an artist. He was almost like a salesman trying to promote his brand, trying to just promote his art, not as art, but as something else. And I just, I, I read that chapter and I was like, I've got to go back and watch this because I just, I've got to see Hurst do this again. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just exactly right. And Noel Fielding there, he's just, uh, you know, Noel Fielding is not a known commodity in North America, but in, in the UK, he's kind of an institution. He's, yeah, you know, he's, he's just taking... Like
1: surreal, he, ironic comedian. Yeah,
0: yeah. And uh, he's just, uh, he's buying it, you know, absolutely. So I think uh, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot to say about Hearst there being more of a, a marketeer as opposed to an artist. But, uh,
1: um yeah yeah and he you know he tries to kind of use that um you know he he treats his own obsession with money ironically you know uh one of the uh, later Damien Hurst artworks that some of your listeners uh, may remember is um it's it's a human skull uh which um has been uh Cast it. Oh dear, am I going to get this right? Cast in platinum. Well, no, no, it's, it's the actual skull, isn't it? Which has then um, uh, had covered onto it. It's entirely okay. covered with diamonds, um, uh, and um, it's uh, it's this image of death and money. And of course, it asks the question of you know. Well, it, it reminds you that you can't take your material wealth with you. When you die, so it's an image of the futility of wealth, you know it's a critique of 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 uh, being obsessed with wealth um and and of therefore you know potentially of capitalism but you know creating this artwork uh and then um selling it in the very clever way that he did, basically nobody was going to buy it for as much money as he uh wanted for it so secretly he and several other different individuals and institutions got the money together and bought it themselves, which means that, you know, therefore the Damien Hirst, uh brand lives on and, and uh, uh, the price of his artworks on the market is, mm-hmm. is maintained or increased. Um, you know, an artwork like that is therefore, it's, it's supposed to be a satire on wealth, but it's also an image of his own obsession with wealth and, and what he says and what his fans say is this is someone kind of engaged in a sort of Andy Warhol-style life mm-hmm. as art. It's a performance. It's ironic. And there's something quite uh, quite alluring about someone who's so, uh, you know, so ironic and so <laughs> up themselves. Um, but ultimately, it produces just complete cynicism on the part of the vast majority of people, because they just see someone mm. playing games, and so it means that you know the the YBA is you know trying to create this uh, this movement of populist avant-garde experimentalism, uh, you know radicalism, which lots of people want to hear about and listen to. That's mm. why they. Play.
0: I definitely got that sense when I watched that interview again that uh, he's definitely sort of in love with his own idea of himself, you know, and that's that's his brand and that's his, uh, that's what he was trying to push. But um, so let's go, let's continue. So over the past few years, there's been a, a reassessment of the 1990s as an era of uh, opportunity and positivity and, and liberalism. Um, so why do you think that is? And why does it matter now?
1: So, I mean, in terms of like re-evaluating music over that time you know um in 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 britain uh re-evaluating 90s music has been it's a co- kind of a constant process it's not just happened recently um and and that's because you know britpop classics have always been popular um and you know they probably will have a resurgence at some point um into being kind of really fashionable again as opposed to just kind of played at people's parties or whatever but at the moment guitar music is so absent from the charts i think it's kind of hard to imagine britpop becoming like super retro fashionable again um and actually what's more you know if we sort of ask ourselves which um older bands are more popular now you know it's 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 post punk you know that's the kind of guitar sound that people are referring to more um, and I guess that's because it's, you know, it's that little bit more dancey sometimes, or it's more electronic. So it's more relevant to contemporary sounds. And also, you know, uh, that era of post-punk is much more melancholic, much more kind of critical perspective, and that feels much more relevant to our, our political and cultural times it's not that Britpop was all optimistic, you know, but the point is we remember it that way. So it doesn't feel quite Yeah, for a
0: time. I've been day. kind of immersed in Britpop because, uh, I, I'm later today, I'm going to be interviewing another author who's just wrote a book called, um, I was Britpopped. And, uh, it's a, it's a Britpop, um, anthology, basically, um, kind of an A to Z. Yeah. It's a really great book, but, um, yeah, like I was, I was reading it and I was just like, Oh my gosh, all these bands that, uh, I used to know and just completely forgotten. And so I've been going back and watching them on YouTube and, and uh, yes, yeah, so I've been kind of immersed in Britpop. It, you know, not all of it was good actually, to be fair, but you know, <clears throat> it was, it was, it was my era.
1: So, you know. Exactly. Exactly. We, we all have a, you know, like we connect to it in a, in a, in a really meaningful way. Um, and then, you know, you, you were asking, you know, kind of reevaluating the nineties generally, as well as, as music, you know, I think that reevaluation of what happened in the 90s in the whole of British society, that's been happening because of the political and the economic turmoil that we've been experiencing ever since the 2007 crash. So that's a whole decade that's been happening. You know, uh, the 2007 crash um, and then, you know, being followed by uh, austerity or recession and then austerity and then stagnation because of austerity. You know, that crash, it destroyed the Labour government that had been in power since 1997, when the next election came along in 2010. That's when Gordon Brown, who had taken over, and, uh, Tony Blair, that's when he uh, got kicked out. Um, and you know, first, that 2007 crash and the sudden realization that things were not OK and that all of that optimism of '97 uh, of had been complete. The, you know been not completely empty, but there have been a lot of emptiness to it. First, it destroyed the veneer of liberalism that um that New Labour had constructed. And it really kind of unleashed a lot of anti migrant propaganda in the right wing press, um, and a lot of um that really you know encouraged anti migrant feeling as well. Um and gradually, more gradually um because of a lot of anti-austerity campaigning you know, just to be clear, austerity is the um, massive program of government cuts that's been instituted since 2010 which um, has caused enormous uh enormous pain and suffering for working class people and lower middle class people in Britain you know it's really about taking away uh benefits and public services that people really depend upon um, at the same time as there being uh, complete stagnation in, in the wages that people are earning, um, and, and and because of you know people fighting against uh, austerity, now um, as well as it, the two thousand and seven crash having destroyed, the veneer of liberalism. Now the the impact of that crash is just eating away at the neoliberal consensus. You know the free market economic assumptions that have dominated British politics since 1979 when this stature uh, came to power uh, and so 10 years after the economic crash we've now got a political centre much more economically socialist with someone like Jeremy Corbyn being more and more popular but also much more socially conservative um, with someone like Nigel Farage mm-hmm. having made in So um...
0: Was there anything from uh, 1997 that you think we got right or an idea that was, uh, that was uh, prominent in 1997, which we discarded for
1: good? You know, I think New Labour, ah, okay. <laughs> I try not to make it entirely about New Labour. Uh, you know, whether it's New Labour or the Spice Girls or Britpop, all of these pointed to the idea that actually... Um, the vision of Britain as a fairer, more welcoming country is actually an enormously attractive one. You know, we're so used to, over the last few years, thinking of, like, Britain's on the way out, Britain's closing down, Britain's closed for business, these kinds of things that we hear. And actually, you know, it's only 20 years ago that we were saying um, our country doesn't have to look to the past to think of itself as being a good and great place that there is something very welcoming in our political in in, in our national history um we you know, haven't got everything wrong and um and that we can be a more tolerant and a more cosmopolitan society um that we can be a fairer society where the state um supports working class people and people who are having a very hard time um that's, uh, you know, that optimistic, more uh, egalitarian idea of what Britain can be. That's not totally made up. That's something that attracts a lot of people. Um, and I think that that can become uh, popular again. But I think what the thing is that it's got to be backed up by real will and real action. I don't think the kind of compromises that um, New Labour represented all politics involves compromises uh, but there were too many with new Labour and you know a lot of people look to the Labour Party still they look to Jeremy Corbyn, um, his very kind of radical vision and they say maybe there is the optimistic outlook for restructuring Britain in a way which is much more fair and which gives a lot more freedom to people um, and you know at the same time again some of your listeners will know this, some won't. Um, uh, there's been a very kind of exciting thing happening on social media um, with uh, lots of grime artists. Um, grime, who we don't know, is kind of London's answer to hip-hop. That's what a uh, writer called Dan Hancock's called it. It's, um, rappers, but was kind of like usually emceeing over kind of very broken beats. Um, it's a genre that's been going in Britain for a long time, but been really popular in the last few years lots of grime musicians have, uh, started really supporting, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> you know, kind of like the coolest people in the country, um, supporting this, like in some ways, very kind of, uh, staid and, uh, kind of a guy. Um, and so maybe there we're seeing like, uh, in the same way that perhaps Jeremy Corbyn represents, uh, a more real version of the optimism that New Labour tried to create, maybe in the same way, you know, Grime MC supporting him is a bit like Noel Gallagher supporting him. But again, it's people who really do come from extremely marginalized communities and who continue to experience lots of racism, supporting Jeremy Corbyn, because they see him as, uh, as a. yeah. Real. So
0: that was the uh, Grime for Corbyn, wasn't it? The uh, hashtag Grime for Corbyn. Yeah. I followed that yeah. when that was happening actually. And, uh, yeah, I was pretty. Uh, I was pretty happy with that. Actually, that was a really good thing. Um, <laughs> yeah,
1: it was a pretty extraordinary thing. Like I mean, we've not seen anything like that um, in British politics for a long time. But then, you know, we haven't seen anything no. Long but long
0: it, ago, also, it was happening like in the that. US as well um, with Bernie Sanders, and um, I so I can't remember that okay. there was a a, a, a hip hop artist uh, who would it, him and Sanders would just sit down and talk back and forth for just, uh, you know, like a whole hour. Um, I, I really, I can't remember his name. Shouldn't have, I shouldn't have brought it up if I can't remember the name. But anyway, yeah, it, it's a re- they're, just, they're just really great. So, you know, it was happening with uh, in the U.S. as well, which is uh, not at the same time, a little bit before. But, yeah, that was so uh, really good. Um, so, uh, so, let's talk about uh, how 1997 planted the seeds of uh, Brexit. So, for those who don't know, Brexit is uh, uh, the UK leaving the uh, European Union, um, which we joined in the early seventies. Um, what do you think contributed to the UK leaving the European Union uh, that stems from twenty years ago?
1: So, I, th- I would say that what happened in '97 was the, you know, partly because New Labour had come to power, but also very much because there was this feeling of optimism that Spice Girls and and Britpop were very much part of. There was this sense of we can now solve we now have the opportunity to solve some of the kind of fundamental problems in our society uh you know imbalances and inequalities um and and there was a lot of hope that that was going to happen uh and uh basically those problems were not solved and i think a lot of those problems are the ones that have led to brexit um, you know, there was this feeling of we're going to create a more generous and a more equal society um, uh, in, kind of, in terms of, kind of class and socioeconomic in, um, inequality. Um, and one of the upshots of that, hopefully, would be the um, migrants and ethnic minority communities wouldn't get scapegoated anymore for problems that they didn't cause. But instead, you know, what happened under New Labour, there definitely was uh you know for instance an increase in social spending um uh, there definitely was um a massive reduction in the number of people living in poverty but a lot of the time what uh what New Labour did was actually quite superficial. Um and so for instance the industrial communities um the mining communities and the uh docking communities um uh who have been kind of crushed by Margaret Thatcher those people needed a lot of support um, because they've been so kind of like aggressively attacked for decades by the people in power, and they weren't given that support. And no surprise, you know, those neglected industrial communities are the ones who um, across Britain uh, voted in the largest numbers for Brexit because those are the people who've been fundamentally let down by. Um, the political and the economic system of this country for decades, and you know what? They were given uh, a choice: like, do you want things to continue as they are, or do you want it to be a fundamental change? Um, and okay, Brexit may not actually end up helping those communities very much, I'm afraid. But the point is, it's not very surprising that people who've been let down over and over and over again by successive governments, not very surprising that they say, "Yeah, let's have a really big change. Maybe it will make things better." It's, you know, and it's not very surprising that Brexit is the way that that gets expressed because a lot of the time, actually, New Labour, especially Tony Blair, um, you know, he really tried to use nationalism, uh, to, um, to promote his extremely international, um, political program. You know, he often would scapegoat asylum seekers, um, and, you know, these people who've come to our country uh asking for help because um they're being oppressed in uh where uh, the countries that they come from um and and then being treated incredibly harshly being given very very little support being you know constantly criticized in the media um and new labor absolutely encouraged that in loads of ways uh and you know that refusal by new labor um to stand up and have solidarity with people like that. Um, It's just not very surprising. The backlash against the the people in power um, has been a very nationalist one.
0: So um, I think, uh, you know, from my my angle anyway, your book uh, does end on actually quite a positive note. Uh, You seem to conclude that uh, some of the radical ideas that were um, presented in music, politics and pop culture in their watered down form um are still in the minds of uh the people who were young during those uh during those years um so what can we learn from our mistakes and uh do you see any hope in the current situation in the uk and any hope for the future of the uk
1: well i think you know if there's a lesson to be learned uh from 97 it is that uh a if you're going to kind of give people hope they're going to get disappointed unless you back that up with some radical action and it's also that if you don't deal with like fundamental injustices in your society, eventually people are going to get angry, and they're gonna there's going to be a backlash. But one of the things that's kind of interesting with '97 is that, of course, you know whether it was Tony Blair talking about creating a fairer society, or the Spice Girls talking about feminism, um, or anti-racist campaigners talking about fighting racism or Brit poppers talking about kind of, uh, the voice of working class Britain being able to express itself. These ideas seeped into our culture. And even if they were not acted upon, you know, even if it, like we have not got uh, a significantly less sexist society, you know, violence against women, whether it's by their partners um, or by other men, it's still incredibly common. Women are the ones who've been hurt by austerity. Um, racism is still a very big problem in our society, and, uh, you know, police, whether that's police racism or uh, the massive class gap between men minority communities and white communities. These problems absolutely still exist, but the idea that that is totally unjust, uh, which was really encouraged by those ideas coming into the mainstream in 97, the idea that those injustices are, have to be addressed much more pervasive. And I think that is why we're now seeing, you know, it's partly to do with Corbyn, but it's also about activists on the street. We're now seeing a lot more anger and um, a lot more insistence that those problems are, are dealt with. Um, and that gives me a lot of hope for the future. Uh, it will be a very tough battle to um, to deal with some of the most kind of like pressing inequalities uh, in our society. But at the moment, you know, we've got hope that it can be done. I
0: think those questions are you know those difficult questions are still are being asked now. You can kind of see it happening in uh, in Hollywood with uh, the sexual assault allegations again. They're coming up. And, uh, you know, those conversations are being had now, which I think is really, really a good thing. Um, I want to ask you, um, what uh any future plans for yourself? Have you got any other uh, writing projects on the go or any uh, documentary uh, projects?
1: Uh, I, you know, oh, it's always bad with this stuff. I've got documentary projects I don't think I can talk about in public, but um, I do have an idea. But I do have an idea about uh, I, I've got a book, um, which I'm just starting to develop. Um, it's about reform and revolution through history. It's kind of the same topic as the 97 book. You know, the book, 97 book is about radicals coming into the mainstream. This is about revolution and reform throughout history. You know, um, when is the right time to, to have a radical struggle and to really fight against the system? And when is the right time to negotiate with people in power? It's all about that question of, you know, what's the most effective and the kind of just way to build a better society
0: you should also work on that book on oasis the late oasis book as well try and justify some of that (laughs) (laughs) i really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today richard it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today
1: oh real pleasure for me thank you very much